James 2:14-26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacked in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it is none, it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from work is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she was received, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cassie. Let's take a second and pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll dive into this part of the scripture. Father, we ask now that you would help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We thank you that you redeem us by your love and grace, and that you are committed to our transformation, that you're committed to our renewal, and to bringing us into a life of flourishing. So we ask that you would continue to do that work here among us this morning and pray these things in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. So we are, as I mentioned, in the middle of a sermon series in this letter of James, and we're seeing each week how God, the father is committed. He's deeply committed to making those who are followers of Jesus to making us into whole people. As he says in chapter 1, verse 4, he wants us all to be perfect and complete or whole, lacking in nothing. And so because James is telling us how concerned God is for making us mature people lacking in nothing, James, throughout his letter, is forcing us to ask hard questions of ourselves. We've seen that really each week so far in this series. We are being asked to engage in in honest self-reflection and in honest spiritual evaluation. The Apostle Paul, in another letter in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? The letter of James really is all about the fulfillment of that one verse from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. James is calling us and asking us to examine ourselves in ways that are healthy, not in some sort of morbidly introspective way, but in a way that is going to lead us forward in this journey towards maturity. 
in the journey towards wholeness so that we will continue to pursue living in a faith that also works. And so today, as we're reaching the second part of chapter two, he's continuing that process by by zooming out, so to speak, from the words that he's written about discrimination in the first part of chapter two to talk more broadly to us about what real faith looks like. And you have to understand, and this is very important for us to grasp this morning, that James is writing this letter 2,000 years ago in the context of dealing with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the church. There are some people in these ancient churches that would claim to believe certain facts or truths about Jesus, but their lives do not bear out what they are claiming with their lips. And so James is really helping us deal with the question of how do you sort all of that out? How do you tell the issue, or excuse me, how do you tell the difference between, between real faith and false faith? Between living faith on the one hand and dead faith on the other hand. That's really the main point that James is getting at. How do you know whether a person, how do you know whether you really believe the gospel? Really, if you've claimed to be a Christian, if you claim to follow Jesus and believe certain facts to be true, how do you know if your faith is genuine? How do you know if your faith is is legitimate? What demonstrates the validity of your Christianity? That's the question that James is pressing upon us this morning. And his answer is really, on the one hand, very simple, and on the other hand, very complex. His answer is, you know the legitimacy of your faith claim based on the fact of whether your faith produces works. Whether your faith produces works or not. Really, you can sum up the whole point of this second part of James 2 like this. Faith without works is a faith that does not work. You like that? It took me a long time to think that up. Faith without works is a faith that does not work. And what he's doing in these few verses is really giving us three different ways of seeing that to be the case. That a faith that doesn't produce and manifest itself in works and in obedience is not really a true faith at all. He gives us first a relevant illustration, and then he gives us rational arguments and then thirdly, he gives us real examples. And so those will be our three points this morning as we move through them consecutively, okay? A relevant illustration, a rational argument, real examples. All attempting to show to us and to press on our hearts this issue of a faith that really isn't producing obedience, that isn't producing good works, is not a faith that works. It's not a real faith at all. So first James, in verse 15 through 17, gives us what I'm calling a relevant illustration. Look in verse 14. Cassie read for us. James says there, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, what good is that? And it's worth mentioning here at the very beginning that his main point is deadly serious. He says that that faith cannot save him. Can that faith save him? Verse 14. That's a rhetorical question. The expected answer is no. So the stakes are high. The answer is that without works, the faith that you claim to have isn't real faith at all. It's a faith that's not going to rescue you from sin and plight and darkness. A faith without works, verse 17, is a dead faith. Verse 20, it's a useless faith. And so we have to understand that James emphasizes over and over this fact. It is possible for some of you, it is possible for some of you to be so self-deceived regarding your spiritual lives that you believe you are Christians and yet in reality you are not. 
That's the hard fact. There's not a, probably a worse sermon to preach on Mother's Day than that. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> We're going through the Bible, sorry. It's the Bible, not me. That's what James says. It's possible for some of you to be so self-deceived regarding your spiritual lives that you believe you're Christians and yet you really are not. And then in 15, James gives an illustration to make that point clear. We've seen him do this before at the beginning of chapter 2. Here he writes that if a Christian, a brother or sister, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and we only you know, say kind things to them or give them helpful advice, but we don't do anything practically to meet their needs, then we're not helping at all, right? Verse 16, what good is that, James asks. So the illustration continues a theme that James is concerned with throughout the letter. And in general, his discussion of a real faith here is continuing from the end of chapter 1, where he talks about pure and undefiled religion. That involves helping those in our orbits, in our circles of influence who are needy and marginalized. And the point really is very simple, okay? Simply saying that you care about people and not demonstrating care for people is really no good at all. Simply claiming to be compassionate and yet not living a life of compassion is no good at all. Simply claiming that you love people and yet not manifesting that love in daily life is no good at all. Talk is cheap for James. Talk is cheap for God. Talk is cheap on the journey towards wholeness. And so he's saying here, don't be deceived into thinking that just because you know how to speak like a compassionate Christian person, you are automatically one who has experienced the new birth that the Spirit of God gives. We've seen that James, being the brother of Jesus, is really reliant in significant ways on Jesus' own teaching in his letter. And I think here about Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. It's really making the same point that James is making here. Let me just read for you what Jesus tells us at the end of that parable. He's saying at the end of the day when he returns, he's going to separate those on the right and those on the left, the sheep and the goats, those that will enter into his kingdom and those that will be cast out into the utter darkness. And then at the end of the parable, he says in verse 41 of Matthew 25, this is Jesus, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So James is saying the sort of faith that just claims to be compassionate and kind and loving, but doesn't demonstrate that, is not really faith at all. Again, the idea that's in James's crosshairs here is the idea of self-deception. And I want us to just pause for a moment again and listen to the hard grace of God coming to us through this letter and realize that the church in our world today is very similar to the church in James's world. It often contains people who are self-deceived, just like the church did when James wrote. And in fact, um, that is exactly 
not to typecast, but it's exactly the sort of person that we feel a particular burden for here at Christ Church. We started this church a couple of years ago in a city of San, like San Antonio where there are hundreds of thousands of very religious, very moral, very kind, very, you know, I'm two thumbs up for Jesus sort of people. And I get asked a lot, not so much as I did in the very, very early days of the church, but I still get asked, why do, you, why do we need another church in San Antonio? There's churches everywhere. And my answer to that varies, but fundamentally, the reason that I felt God calling us to this city is because I know this is a very religious place. It's a very religious place. There are churches everywhere. People are still fairly moral and decent. And in a sense, a place like San Antonio is the most dangerous place of all for living a life of spiritual wholeness, for living a life of joyous integrity, for living a life of spiritual vibrance. And the reason is that it's so easy for people in our city to be self-deceived about where we stand with regard to Jesus. And this part of the Bible is written to those of us who perhaps have made a decision, made a decision for Jesus, or prayed a prayer, or signed a card, or walked an aisle, or gone through a communicants class, or joined a church, or answered the questions of membership, or declared themselves to be Christians, but whose lives do not show any real marks of faith. James was looking at the lives of these ancient believers and saying hard things to them. He was saying, I see no consistent, visible evidence of an outflow of the life of faith in this person. And as far as James is concerned, that person is simply not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. We need to hear this. It's, it's a hard grace for us. God is seeking to perhaps reveal to us our own self-deception. It's like a spiritual stomach punch, as we said the last few weeks. If you just talk about faith and church and Christianity and God but your life bears no marks of actually living for Jesus and being willing to die for yourself, then you are not a Christian. Your faith is dead. Your faith is useless. And this morning, perhaps God is calling you by the power of the Holy Spirit out of your self-deception into a true life in Christ, into a life of joyous integrity, into a life of renewal, into a life where change is not just spoken about, but where change is progressively taking place. You see, that's what the gospel does for us. The gospel is for those who call themselves religious, and the gospel is for those who call themselves irreligious. Both the religious and the irreligious people need to turn from their own sense of accomplishment, from their own sense of worth, from anything they bring to the table where they think they can say, God, look at this. God, look at what I've done. God, look at who I am. The gospel calls us to lay those things aside, to turn from them to, as the scripture tells us, to repent and to rest in Jesus, to rest in his accomplished work for us alone, in his death, which pardons our sin, and in his resurrection, which gives us new life forever. Only in Christ is forgiveness to be found. Only through faith in the gospel is change actually going to begin progressively to take place in your lives. And so we must ask ourselves, ask yourself now, do I see change 
progressively. I'm not going to be perfect tomorrow or today or ever, but do I see change progressively taking place in my heart and in my actions and the way I treat my family because I've believed in this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? That's what James is pressing lovingly, graciously, and yet also with some difficulty upon each one of us. He does that through this illustration. And then he continues to do it, secondly, in verse 18, by giving us a a rational argument. He uses that illustration, and then he changes his tune a little bit and does something that we see often in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll see sort of talk like this, especially in Paul's letters. And what we see James doing here is sort of introducing another voice to argue with the point that he's making. That's what's happening there in verse 18. Look at what he says. But someone will say, and most of your Bible translations will have quotes here, you have faith and I have works. That's the other voice, the the antagonist, so to speak, that, that James is introducing so that he can argue with him back and forth. He interacts with that question, with that voice in the second part of verse 18 all the way through the end of verse 20. So what is the argument? Well, James's imaginary opponent is basically saying this, right? He's saying, hey, James, listen, I have faith, you have works, it's all good. They're all gifts from God. Why are you condemning me for having the gift of faith and not necessarily having the gift of works? Do you see that there? <clears throat> That's what James is getting at. This, this person is basically saying, listen, James, the Bible says there's a variety of spiritual gifts. So don't condemn me, James, for not doing good works. They're just a gift I don't have. I will just rest in my gift of faith and not worry about what I don't have or what I'm not doing. So what does James think of that sort of argument? Well, his response there is found immediately following, and it boils down to this. Faith and works cannot be separated. Faith and works are not just different gifts. Rather, they are necessary correlatives of one another. And then he takes it to the next level there in verse 19. He says, you believe in theological truths. God is one. That's great. Guess who you're on par with at that point? Demons. Even demons believe that, and at least they have the good sense to shudder. You don't even have that good sense. That's what he's implying there. So James basically says that to claim that you can have a mere faith without any works attached to it is to do exactly what demons do. It's pretty crazy to do exactly what evil spirits do. Listen, demons, demonic spirits have good theology. Demons believe in the Trinity. Demons believe in the great profession of the Old Testament, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They know and they believe in facts and realities and ideas that are true, but obviously their attitudes and their actions are still evil. James is saying, congratulations, you've made it to the level of the demonic. If you claim that you just have faith, defined as believing in abstract principles or concepts without any accompanying actions or attitudes. James is saying that's not faith at all, actually. That sort of faith is, James tells us, verse 20, useless. If you have real faith, 
If you have saving faith, then you are going to have to show it by demonstrating life change, by demonstrating concern for others, by demonstrating works. Matt Chandler is a pastor of a church in Dallas called The Village. He's the president of Acts 29, which we're a part of, and he gives a great illustration to make this point. So I'm taking this from Chandler. This isn't mine. He talks about how his wife buys a bunch of old antique chairs and sort of, you know, refurbishes them and then decorates them in their home. And uh, Chandler talks about how he refuses to sit in any any of those chairs. (laughs) And his wife will say to him, sit down, honey, just sit in one of the chairs. He's like, I'm not sitting in that chair. I know what happens when I sit in that chair. I go visit the chiropractor. That's what happens. That chair is not going to hold me. James is saying here, really, that if you're going to claim to be a believer, you must sit in the chair. You've got to sit in the chair of Christianity. James is asking, do you believe that the chair of Christianity can hold you or not? This antagonist is saying, yeah, I believe the chair can hold me. I see that these chairs are, they're actually very comfortable movie theater chairs. That's why some of you are nodding off, I can tell. They're very comfortable and they seem clear that they're going to hold me up. They're made of, I'm sure there's some metal in here, there's some steel. They're, They're good chairs. And James says, okay, go ahead and have a seat. And the antagonist says, you know, I understand the physics of what it would be for me to sit down. And I think I understand, you know, the molecules that are making up this chair, but I'm not really comfortable sitting. I had a bad experience with chairs in my past. I don't want to sit down. Have a seat. If you believe that this chair is going to hold you, you need to sit in it, James says. And the opponent says, you know what? I'd rather just talk about the relative value or devalue of various kinds of chairs. Can we talk about that? Sit in the chair. Prove. Prove to me that you believe it will hold you. You see, for this antagonist that James brings into the story here, and often for us, there's no willingness to demonstrate that we believe that the chair of Christianity will hold us. This is a piece of James that, again, I think people in our particular tribe, in our particular branch of the church need to hear and need to discern And the reason we need to hear and discern this is because in our weakness, we tend to disconnect our concern for theology and for doctrinal correctness from practical needs of mercy and justice and a life of holiness. And so it's possible to have churches that are full of mean and crusty and unwelcoming and ungracious systematic theologians. Churches where there's not much love for neighbor. There's not much welcome for the outsider. There's not much care for the poor. There's not much concern for the needs of the city. Listen, good theology is necessary and important and good. I love it. I'm deeply committed to it. But if it doesn't lead to holiness of life, it is worthless. Furthermore, it is injurious. It's harmful. One commentator, J.A. Mitten, writes this. It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. So James is, again, driving the point home through this rational argument, right? And then lastly, 21 following in the scriptures, we see James give two real examples, both from the Old Testament to make his point that faith without works is a faith that does not work. So one is the example of the famous father of the faith, the patriarch Abraham. 
famous Old Testament figure. And the other is the example of this prostitute, Rahab. The patriarch and the prostitute. I love that. I love that James pulls examples from totally different stratospheres, right? To show us that these truths apply to anyone and to everyone. So real quick, let's look at, look at these examples that James gives. In 21, James argues that Abraham, he says, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, verse 21. Now, (laughs) if you know your Bible well, back to that good theology point, if you know your gospel well, that might make, in fact, that probably should make you stop and say, whoa, James. Is James saying here that we are justified by what we do and not by faith? Well, the short answer is no. Moving on. (laughs) Uh, If he were saying that, if he were saying that, everything I've been teaching you for the last two years would be false. And much more importantly, other parts of the Bible would also be false. Scripture does not contradict Scripture. So briefly... You have to see that James and, for example, Paul use this word justified, very important Bible word. They use that word in different ways. When Paul, in a letter like Romans or Galatians, when Paul uses that word, he is using it to refer to our status before God. He's talking about how humans can gain God's favor or can gain a status of righteousness before God. And Paul says, the Bible says, that that happens by faith alone in Jesus. That's what Paul means by the word justify. When James here uses the word justify, he means something different. When he uses the word, he means something like vindicated or proven. For James, Abraham is justified in the sense that he vindicates or proves that he has true saving faith by his works. That's what verse 22 makes clear. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Plus the story James tells of Abraham is about him going up to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, his son Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22. That is after Genesis 15, which, by the way, James quotes in the very next verse. Genesis 15 is the moment when Abraham believes the gospel and is justified, Genesis 15, 6. Later in his life, Genesis 22, he proves that the faith he has placed in Jesus is a real faith, is a legitimate faith, is a living faith by being willing to obey God even to the point of sacrificing his own son. When James uses the word justify, he's referring to Abraham's justifying action, a vindication of Abraham's faith. Think about it this way, very simple illustration. When the scripture is talking about entrance into salvation or believing in the gospel for the first time, faith and works are like oil and water. They do not mix. But when the Bible speaks about justification and faith in the sense of our vindication or in the sense of proving that we really have faith, that we're truly Christians, faith and works are like peanut butter and jelly. They go together. They taste good together. Peanut butter and honey, maybe. Peanut butter and bananas. Whatever you like. You can play with the illustration a little bit. That's allowed. Um, Here's what he said about 
here's what Charles Spurgeon, by the way, says about this idea. He's a 19th century preacher. This is a great quote. Listen to this. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now, the source of life to that tree is at the root, whether it has apples on it or not. The apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead. And you are correct. It is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is a proof that it is dead. So too is it with those who profess faith. So James uses Abraham as an example of the journey to wholeness, of someone who became complete, lacking in nothing. That's really cool. By the way, in our fall sermon series, we're studying the life of Abraham. And we'll see that Abraham proved that his faith was a living faith over time. If you go back to Genesis and read the story, you'll see, you know, after Genesis 22, that issue with sacrificing Isaac, Abraham sort of leaves the silliness of his previous life behind. After Genesis 22, there's no more, hey, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. Go for it, Abimelech. Take her out on a date. You know, there's no more of that, which Abraham did in his younger days. After Genesis 22, he changed over time. He came a long way from those earlier weak moments. So that's the first real example. And the second one, quickly, is the issue of Rahab. That's who James talks about there in verse 25. Just like Abraham, Rahab proves her faith is real when she does good works in letting the spies into Jericho. If you want to read that story, it's in Joshua chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And I love that James includes Rahab alongside Abraham. Let me think about that. Rahab is a prostitute who lives already in a culture that severely marginalizes women. So she's almost certainly been abused and mistreated her entire life. And she has these men, these Jewish spies, come into her room and make her a promise. They say, if you get us out of this city, we promise when we come back and take over, we'll let you live. And for Rahab to believe a man's promise, that would have been hard. I mean, that would have been perhaps an insurmountable insurmountable difficulty, it seems. But the scriptures tell us that she trusted through these men, God's promise. And God was faithful to her. She proved that she believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through being willing to really to put herself on the line in obedience, in a risky act of good works. So again, the main point is that the only faith that can possibly be real faith The only faith that can possibly save is a faith that is completed by works, is a faith that produces works. Faith and works are always holding hands. They are inseparably bound together in the Christian life. And so James wants us to examine ourselves again and to see if our faith is a faith that works because a faith that works is the only real faith. James does that through relevant illustration through rational argument, through real examples. And so we have to just conclude as we wrap up by, again, asking ourselves, are we in the faith? Have we truly turned from sin, turned from the world, turned from our evil desires in repentance and looked to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation? 
Have we placed all of our trust in his earned righteousness for us in his life, death, and resurrection alone? Have we come to the point where we are able to say, I bring nothing to the table. There is nothing I could do to ever secure God's favor. I rest completely in the righteousness of Christ given to me by faith. Have you done that? Or have you just sort of been engulfed in the religious culture that you've grown up in? Have you done that? Or are you just going through the motions of church and spiritual discipline and this and that? If you've done it, it's going to show itself in your life through progressive transformation, through progressive change. So Jesus here is inviting you. He's inviting you to repentance and to faith, whether you've never done it before or whether you've been a Christian for 80 years. If you are in the faith, Jesus is ready and stands to save you. He is full of mercy and power. He is able. He is able to save you. Do not doubt his willingness and his love for you. Come to him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Let's pray.